Milk. Honestly, God, I'm really glad you came here today. And I mean that, mate. I really mean that. Because I've got one question to ask you. Just one question and, you know, when you've heard it, if you want to leave, you can leave. By all means, that's fine by me, but I've got one question to ask you. And that's, do you consider yourself English or Jamaican? English. Hello, you're listening to In The Cut. On this episode, Erin and Jesse will be talking about This Is England, the 2006 film from Shane Meadows. I can still see you, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> doing your big freak out. You wanker. I'm dying. Your voice is so perfect. I'm dying. Right, I'll start again. Okay. <laughs> you can... <laughs> You're the best. I owe you so much for doing this. Yeah, you do. This is just a big thing so all your friends can have a little laugh later on. No, it's not laughing at you. Right. It's laughing because I'm just so enamored with your voice and yeah, I'm yeah. so awkward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. I'm going to start again. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Hello. You're listening to In The Cut. On this episode, Erin and Jesse will be talking about This Is England, the 2006 film from Shane Meadows. As the conversations on this show get so specific, you can get the most out of them if you've watched the movie before you join us, even if you are some Muppet who doesn't care about spoilers. You can find links to various ways to watch the movie now by coming to inthecut.org. Okay, here's Erin and Jesse. Thank you You're going to so have much. to cut that into two bits and take out the... I'm going to use the entire on. thing as recorded. Both takes. <laughs> Don't you dare. Don't you dare. <laughs> that was the incomparable Laura being incredibly patient with me, as always. I do have Aaron here, and we are going to talk about This is England, and I'd love to get started. So you've seen it a few times. Yeah, I've, I've probably seen it four or five times. Um uh, I am a big fan. It's pretty amazing. I'm really glad that that you brought it up and and that we. Yeah, I think I'd been uh, been trying to make you watch it for a couple of years, and said this was a good excuse. <laughs> 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 I suspected something like that. But I might for just sure. use all of my picks for that. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can if you want we can start a second list of movies that you just think I need to see. <laughs> Even whether or not, and uh, and I'll try and keep up on those as well as ones that you want to really pick apart together. It was really effective for me. It hit home. Where do you think we should start? I don't know. I don't really have, you know, normally I would pick the things that irritated me and pick at them. <laughs> but uh, I wasn't really irritated. I just, I pretty much... Um, um, uh, we could start with Smell talking to Sean's mom, which is the funniest scene in the movie. <laughs> That was great. She, <laughs> she's she's pretty amazing. Uh, I don't know if you know, but there's a couple of uh, sequels to This Is England that were put out as miniseries on the BBC. She's really great in you know she's a big character in at least the second uh, series. I haven't actually watched uh, the newer one. Um, yeah, I really I really enjoyed her. She really inhabited that role. I thought. <laughs> I kind of think that she is just that person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's pretty I adorable, seen. and she she stood out from the other girls in the group because she was kind of stylistically 
uh, I mean, they they were all kind of fit in the time period of the movie, but oh, yeah. she was I mean, kind she of was new, like, new wavy, and the others were kind of like punky. Yeah, I mean, I think she was the only probably the only one of the girls who wasn't you know a skinhead. How how old was she supposed to be? One of the one of the difficulty struggles I had watching the movie was I had a hard time pinning down how old everyone was supposed to be. Um, I think she was supposed to be a. I mean, a little older than him, like, you know, maybe, you know, 14. 14, really? Uh, maybe, maybe younger. I mean, he was 12. He, uh, I know he was 12. And I sort of, like, I sort of did a little math and I worked it out. There's a scene where Lowell talks about that she was 16 when when she and Combo had sex. And, and that was right before he went to jail. And he went to jail for three years. So she's about 19. I didn't really get that Smell was that much younger than the other girls, but it would make more sense plot-wise, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I could be wrong. I don't know if there's actually anything I got got that from, but I, th- I think... I mean, I think Lowell was older than the rest of the girls. Hmm. I, think, I mean, I think, like, Lowell and Woody were both... Yeah, that's... I, I mean, this is, this is a, just the shallowest possible observation, <laughs> but how fucking beautiful are... 80s English punk girls like I couldn't <laughs> get over it there was so like the scene where the three girls are shaving his head and they're just standing around him I was just like in love I was so in love <laughs> it's the suspenders and fishnets and the haircuts and I was just over the moon with all of these amazing women so yeah I I could, you know, I could see Smell being, I mean, in, in I can see Smell being written as like a 14 or 15 year old, although she didn't look 14 or 15. She looked like late teens, like almost 20s. And most of those other girls, I think, looked a little older than they were meant to be as well. And I think that's pretty normal in a movie that you cast, you know, that much older. Uh, Sean, though, uh, Thomas Turgus is 13 mm-hmm. when they film this. Yes. And he, uh, the story I read, and this is like, I mean, it's pretty dumb to just like shoehorn little Wikipedia factoids <laughs> in here, but I loved this too it's, much. Yeah, I've, uh, was I know. That I... He had he had never acted before. That he had just been banned from his school play for bad <laughs> behavior, and that was his only <laughs> acting experience. And and when they asked him to turn up for the auditions for the film, he demanded five pounds to show up. <laughs> Yeah, I it's love like that. give him the part. He doesn't even need to audition at that point. He's like in the bag. He's perfect. <laughs> he was great, and I loved it. I loved it. His he, he, incredible actor for thirteen years old. I thought. Yeah, it's it, it's it's hard to find. Yeah, like a naturalistic child actor is just um, so rare. And a good, I mean, pretty a good range too. I mean, it's you know, for for a kid, it seems like you can get three quarters of the way there by just creating the scenario on the set and they're just right. reacting to it super organically but when he has to be like sobbing or, or like really emotional about something or when he's stoned or something like <laughs> he actually has to bring some chops and he does it's I, I can't think of a 13 year old actor who's distracted me less <laughs> from the movie by, by yeah just, and you know if he didn't work you know the movie wouldn't wouldn't work absolutely you know, they wouldn't have had a movie um he was in. I mean, he was in um, yeah, another another movie with the same director that was really great. Um, when he was, you know, probably a couple of years later, and then but he's gotten some roles in stuff. Uh, didn't huh. look like anything that looked good to me, but uh, he's definitely working. But I thought good performances across the board, really. 
Oh yeah, every really was. everybody. Uh, I, I mean the um, what's this? The guy who played Combo, you know, uh, I, I love Stephen that Graham. I, I love that actor. That's been uh, he's unbelievable. One of my favorite things uh, watching uh, Boardwalk Empire is you know he's Al Capone. And, right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, it took me a so... second to recognize him in this movie, and part of it is just because I mean he obviously he looks exactly the same. He's not like made up or anything. He's dressed differently, but um, <clears throat> but because of the both accents he does sound so incredibly natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he carries himself really differently, and uh... yeah, I think I think his his performance in this movie is one of the best I've seen in a movie that I can remember across. Yeah, the board. I um just that uh. You know that climactic scene uh, uh, with Milky. That's, I mean, that kind of gives me chills. That, I mean, just like the kind of close up on his face and uh, yeah, the roiling yeah. kind of emotion just under the surface. And yeah, with I mean, he does it. I mean, with so little, he's not 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 doing anything big. Not uh, right. He's not like cracking his knuckles and pacing and stuff. <laughs> he's just really the way he can bring a little tremor in his voice or how quickly his eyes dart around yeah how he's kind of holding himself as he stands it's incredible and not just that scene which obviously is a pivotal and and emotionally critical scene but he has to show a ton of range in this when he's you know he gives the the monologue in the group he he's when he gets rejected by lowell and he's like breaks down in the car I mean, that's the, the, these are really distinctly different aspects, and and he holds them together into a really consistent but extremely dynamic character. It's, yeah, I feel like I mean, you really get you really know a whole lot about that character by by the end. That's really you know not at all explicit, and and a lot of I think pretty much I mean pretty much all of the characters you really you really you really get to know. Uh, no, well, you know, I'll talk a little bit of sound, but we did end up running things, didn't we? We certainly did. It was just, I mean, for three weeks, right? This fucking wog, right? Proper horrible. Sorry, mate. Sorry. Didn't mean not to buy that, you know what I mean? Just slip of the tongue, like. Sorry, this, you know, this brown gentleman. Who, uh, he was a bully, though. He was a horrible bully, do you know what I mean? No matter what colour he was, he was a bully. And I hate bullies, don't I, Wood? No, Can't yeah. stand them, man. Yeah. Can't stand them. But for three weeks, right, this fella was robbing my pudding. What kind of pudding was it? <laughs> Doesn't matter what pudding it was. That's not the point. The pudding's not the point. The point is, he was taking my pudding off me. So the social dynamics in the group are the kind of the main centre of the movie. And I thought that they really worked. Like they didn't feel scripted. They didn't feel like the 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 characters were just playing kind of types. Yeah, that's you really get a, a you know real strong sense of the dynamics. And again, you know, with nothing really being made explicit, a few of those scenes that are just you know a room full of people, maybe more so in this movie than I've ever seen before. Just these really. You basically know what's going on with pretty much all of the characters in there. You know the scene where uh, where the where everyone first meets Combo. Yeah. You know you can really read it the same way you'd be reading a real room full of people. Yeah, I I, I definitely had that experience. So I guess the interesting thing about this movie is how it how it compares to other movies about skinheads, which are all 
pretty bad. I don't know. So was there another good skinhead movie? I don't know how many skinhead movies I know except for American History X. I guess I mean it's American History X and uh, Romper Stomper. One one of the big things in the movie is that is that it it shows the roots of that culture being in these like West Indian or other like Jamaican. Right. I mean, it's, it's all about, I mean, that's where skinheads in the sixties, right. Working class white people. And I mean, I guess, you know, working class, everybody who really into reggae and really into, you know, that kind of working class culture. And so like the big irony of, of and that comes to a head at the same time, a lot of stuff in the movie comes to a head is that, is that this, what kind of is co-opted by, those racist nationalist groups was was really was not a white right. <laughs> scene in the in the initial and and I I was curious because this is it's a new idea to me that I didn't really I hadn't really been exposed to I guess before and whether this was a pretty broadly accepted understanding of where that culture came from or whether this was a contentious point that the movie was making was arguing oh no that's uh, i wasn't sure people yeah i've got i've i've had lectures from skinheads um I've had, <laughs> skinheads do like to give you a lecture about uh <laughs> <laughs> proper skinheading and what it means because it's a pretty it's a pretty perfect little irony like it's almost like too good to be true <laughs> and it's a main thing in the movie i mean there's like the posters from the bands in the background and the, of course the you know conversation that when milky and combo are, are really bonding over the music and where they were coming from the music and and that kind of background is is obviously a big part i mean like every white power movement is i mean they co-opt you know, some aspect of working class culture is always the core of it. Right. And, I mean, the fact that the real existing fetishizing of that culture, a lot of people were actually, you know, working class in the kind of second wave. But it was also just a lot of rich white kids. That's <laughs> <laughs> that kids looking for authenticity or whatever. Yeah, you know, I think the the first wave really was out of the you know factories and shipyards and that kind of thing. The nationalistic ideas are introduced by Combo, but that he brings them from his time in jail yeah which is i mean yeah definitely i mean something you see a lot of <laughs> right right um, where where it's the the kind of this neo-nazi group is kind of the white gang in jail and something that you know someone someone might have turned to for protection or whatever i'm sure like and with all those groups i mean you just perfect little demographic pockets to recruit from the way it portrayed recruitment and and kind of i mean brainwashing would be too strong of a word because it really didn't portray it as brainwashing it portrayed it as as an effective pitch Mm -hmm. i thought the movie handled that with just the right touch and the way that the leaders of this kind of the carriers of this mentality really tapped into this sense of persecution or like of victimhood mm-hmm. oh, yeah. really it's... rang true and when he's when the national front leaders speaking and he says we're scarcely allowed to even speak the name of our country right <laughs> which is obviously like f- invented bullshit but it puts it, it helps bring you into this mindset that you're under attack in a way and it's such a good mobilizing technique for people because it taps into the your kind of fight or flight defense mechanism yeah and i mean it's definitely something you see echoed a lot right now <laughs> you know in uh if you turn on fox news or whatever a lot of who's the real minority i think it's echoed it has been echoed in historically and currently mm-hmm. in a big way for sure because it, it also can validate your fears that you have yeah i think one of the reasons you know in the movie was so effective is because you know, i read an interview with, with shane meadows and um he is someone 
who for uh, not for a long time but for a time really did buy it when he was a kid really and it's you know pretty autobiographical movie and you know he's he got the pitch and the romance of it and it, it uh yeah, worked on him. I said, you know, he's probably believed it for about a month before he figured <laughs> it out. But uh, <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's important. You know, every other movie I've seen you know, with these kind of people, you always make them villains and buffoons. Yeah, there's you know this rule in movies that you can't present gross ideas convincingly because people don't like that. I really liked it. I really felt like oh, it was yeah. a breath of fresh air. It brought a real reality to it. Yep. And again, so much of that just ends up falling on Stephen Graham's shoulders in the character of Combo to deliver mm-hmm. it. And he more than rises to the occasion. It's pretty amazing. But yeah, no, I think there's I think there's any number of modern comparisons you can make. Uh, like the immediate thing I thought of was uh, in the U.S. was gun owner groups and that same kind of like <laughs> they're going to take our guns thing when there's no actual basis in fact. For right. It was a word that stood for power, a word that stood for freedom, a word that stood for respect. But today, we're scarcely even allowed to speak the name of our country. God, you honestly gonna well, I want to revive that word, a grand old word, the word Englishman. Yes! yes. yes. Now, we've been marginalised. We've been called cranks. We're not cranks. Some people say we're racist. We're not racist. We're realists. Some people call us Nazis. We're not Nazis. And what we are, we are nationalists. And there's a reason people try to pigeonhole us like this. And that is because of one word, gentlemen. Fear. Yeah. 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 They fear us. They fear us because we are the true voice of the people of this country. Yes! Yes, yes Lenny. People who work hard, pay their way, don't matter what their ethnic background is, I welcome open arms in this country. It's the people who think yeah. we owe them a living. Yes. These are the people that need to go back. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of interesting then, I mean, a very conservative administration you know this was a couple years into thatcher right you know i mean i've heard people kind of talk about you know what the connection is and one of the really attractive things about skinhead culture and i mean about you know most subcultures but i think that one very strongly is this idea of commonality of its of that there's a strong us Hmm. and that the thatcher reagan era very much didn't have that. It was really the very me era, huh. greed-centered conservatism. You know, as Alan Greenspan started making financial policy, and, uh, huh. and Ayn Rand had finally got her people in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the movie really gives it to you in, in not only, like you were saying, a, a convincing and, and realistic way, but in a way that's, I think, easily mapped to contemporary, you know, comparisons. One takeaway from this movie, and and especially from the climactic scene where Combo attacks Milky, is that, I mean, taking into consideration that the scene starts with Combo bringing Milky in and obtaining everybody's approval that it was okay for him to be there and no one had a problem with him. One takeaway from that could be that that this kind of nationalistic mentality that that these people are buying into has an inherent racism baked into it and that you you can't escape it even if you think that 
you are rising above it or that this kind of nationalism has nothing to do with race or that kind of cultural xenophobia or whatever. I think a more interesting angle on it or, or more illuminating is that kind of the big concepts that and the seemingly like ironclad principles behind a, a, a mindset like this really have this kind of chameleon, chameleonic, chameleon-like way of, of attaching to our brains where the way Combo insists on like righteously insisting that, that Milky is welcome and, and getting every, obtaining everyone's approval in the scene when he brings him into the house is seems to be fed by that same kind of like righteous knowledge that that this is where he's coming from and that it's not a racial thing and then just as righteously coming down on him and everyone else like enthusiastically wanting to jump in and come down on milky in the same way they're they seem they're both fed by the same kind of mindset in in a way that even though they're opposite your mind has a way of using this what seems like an unassailable principle that you're operating on to justify both you know reactions or or both actions yeah and and i mean, i think um that you know everything that combo did in that scene was entirely personal and not didn't you know actually have anything to do with ideology right and you know i think he is not an ideological person really or maybe you know he's someone who you know wants and needs a code but you know he's the fact that it's this particular ideology isn't inherent to him you know these aren't necessarily things right. he really believes why let me ask you a question about that scene because we're there why do you think combo asks milky about his family because that's where combo is i think making a deliberate decision to take the interaction down that path um, to where it inevitably I mean, ends up how i took that scene and uh I mean, I think he was jealous. I mean, I think you get a lot about his character, although really it is never spelled out at all that, you know, he is a guy who had a really, really shitty dad and didn't really have a family. And kind of this whole thing for him is, you know, trying to have a family and he likes being a father figure to Sean and he really, Mm -hmm. and just hearing about just how nice this big family is and also hearing about it in a way that confirms a lot of the rhetoric he's been hearing. Yeah, you can see how we how we mm-hmm. live, I think, Milky's. And that he's got all these all these uncles who all have these kids with different women and they're not responsible and right. so there's, you know, that aspect as a trigger, but I I mean I think the bulk of it is he just is um just, you know, been rejected by law and that's obviously a, mm-hmm. a huge thing and he's just getting kind of fucked up and he's uh I would say, yeah, it's it's jealousy and uh I think so too, but I also, I mean, the way it's written, it seems like Combo is trying to create that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's a moment, and you see it on his face, that it's really, I mean, it's amazing. Like the moment where he turns, like, you know, he really is having this good time. And there's this moment when, you know, when Milky starts talking about his family and blah, it's like, you know, a minute of just, you know, Milky talking and uh, mm-hmm. seeing Combo's face and seeing really him go through the whole thing where he's starts to get agitated and starts to get agitated and then mm-hmm. you know then he needs to he needs the outlet you know he needs the violence you know he's a violent guy mm-hmm. that's how that's his emotional outlet and and he needs to trigger it you know there's that's how people who start fights start fights you don't just punch a guy yeah yeah i i didn't i didn't know whether it, i would have an op- or whether it would be appropriate to bring this up but it's it's really similar to when I've seen a guy start a fight and I and I watched a guy start a fight with a friend of mine and there was a whole spinning up 
thing he had to do to kind of get the adrenaline flowing and to, and he, to feel justified. He like really was like he was begging my friend to call him a faggot so he could use that to start the fight. Mm-hmm. It was extremely fucking surreal. And I and I suppose it, it just seemed like a weird <laughs> insane thing that in this guy's mind, but I'm I'm sure it's it's a real just kind of w- weird aspect of how the mind works in that situation or how an inherently angry person builds themselves into the protagonist of the fight or whatever. Yeah, you can't just sucker punch somebody and, you know, feel good about it. Uh, right. I'll be nice, wouldn't it? Nah, seriously, man, because I'd love, I'd love for you to do that. I'd love for you to do that. That'd be nice. Seriously, come and see how we, how we live in between. Even on a bad day, there'll probably be a couple of my uncles and about seven. Okay, you've got everything you, haven't you? What? You've got the whole lot, haven't you? You've got the whole fucking perfect package, haven't you? Fucking okay, hell. got everything you, didn't you? Fucking okay, hell. So, well, I mean, what do you think makes a bad dad? Not that am I. I know you had a good dad and that, right? But be honest with me, what do you what do you really think makes a bad dad though? I don't know, man. What's, what's with the questions, man? I feel like I'm being interrogated. Yeah, that's that was a really, really compelling scene. And I think there's no question in my mind that you're right, that that the crux of it is this idea of fatherhood. In fact, the it seems like what combo said that was really the point of no return and when milky realized what was going on was what do you think makes a bad dad then and that that was really the i mean it it, it was all it was over earlier than that in combo's mind but the situation turned on that point i think mm-hmm. yeah and that was that was amazing watching yeah watching combo go yeah all the way and 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 yeah, just no one else in the room being aware of it. Mm-hmm. And after it's over, just I mean, just tell you, just immediately, no, you, I mean, his huge fucking regret <laughs> that he has. Yeah, his when the adrenaline drains, he he is just like it's like a crashing on a drug, and he's desperate and he's crying. And I mean, just and everybody in the room is just <laughs> so sad. Everyone is so sad. The other thing uh, that I caught the second time I watched it was that, you know, there's these lovely close-ups of Combo and Milky as the tension is building, of going back and forth between their just close-ups of their faces. And that's the first moment where I noticed, and it might have been the first moment in the movie where they did this, but it was the first time I noticed that he combo has those cuts on his cheek mm-hmm. and they're they're almost a mirror image of the scrapes on Sean's cheek after he gets in the fight at the beginning of the movie. Hmm. And I was, I don't know for sure that it was deliberate because that, you know, there's plot justifications for each of them independently. But it, it, in my mind, it drew a link between Sean's, you know, manner of, you know, Sean's at an age where he's learning to cope with these difficult situations. And obviously, when he was real aggressively provoked in the beginning of the movie and, and fought the older kid and came home with those cuts on his cheek, um, this is a bellwether of the man he's growing into. So to have Combo have the same cuts on his cheek seemed like it may have been deliberate. And 
And it again ties it back to the kind of the idea of the movie being about Sean and the ideas about fatherhood in his life. Yeah, there's, I mean, definitely the sense that yeah, Sean could grow into combo. And I think that they cast it really well in that way, too. It almost has, <laughs> it's almost like accidental because Stephen Graham is just unarguably the best possible <laughs> actor for that role. And, and Sean, as we talked about before, was just like a perfect, like serendipitous ca- casting role, but but that they didn't look too dissimilar. <laughs> and, you know, and, and when it, obviously the whole thing is about is about combo kind of stepping into tr- to be a father type figure for for Sean and, and how that ends up not working. Man, yeah. And another thing in that, like the very end of that scene, combo is completely lost it and is freaking out until he notices that Sean is also freaking out. And then he just immediately snaps into that mm. leadership mode. And, uh, you know, you really see a kind of amazing part of his personality where he really just immediately pulls all his shit together. And is- he mostly does. Yeah. The other thing about that moment where he does that is is that he starts really chastising Sean for crying. Mm-hmm. And he says, crying stops now. Real men don't cry. And I immediately th- thought back to their earliest bonding moment, which was in the car when Combo says, if you ever want someone to cry with, I'll be there for you. <laughs> So it it, bring, it brings us to where where Sean and and his father kind of are, and I think that that was that was a, a, I mean such a big part of the movie and such a big part of what I how the movie kind of spoke to me if that's not too melodramatic way of putting it. But when you're really young, like when you're an infant, your your father is like a obviously like this omniscient figure, right? He's like this god figure in in your life. But there's an there's a transition and there's an age where you can start to see what kind of man your father is in the world of human beings that, you know, are all <laughs> as much human beings as he is. And I think that that's just the age that Sean's father was taken from him. And he's kind of striving to find out what kind of human being his father is. And, and all he, he seems to have is this this incredibly stoic photo of him in his military uniform he's at an age where he really wants to kind of prod his father and investigate his father and understand him in this new way the way that he's starting to understand adults as as not infallible human beings and so i i the sense i get isn't that he's looking for a father like substitute like he's I, I, the sense i get is that not that he's looking for a stand-in father figure to replace his father he wants his father mm-hmm. and how he bonds to woody and then later to combo way, the way i empathize with him in that area is that he seems to want them to show him who his father was and i think the, the part of the reason he rejects woody right away is that woody is like more of an older brother mm-hmm and obviously he he it comes to a breaking point with combo where he can't continue letting combo inform him of what kind of man an, an adult or his father is and and i think that's why the movie ends on on him throwing st george's cross flag into the into the ocean because that kind of represents a certain mentality about why his father died and who his father what his father believed in that he was rejecting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I really just took it. Yeah, to be yeah that rejection of. I mean, more. I guess I guess I was just looking at it more. You know, um, what his father's death meant. Right. And I think a lot of that, and a lot of his attraction to Combo over Woody, I thought of that. I thought was just that 
combo was angry hmm. you know the whole thing was like just a place to put his anger where else <laughs> you right. know, there's no way to actually make emotional sense of uh his dad died in you know kind of bullshit war and uh right just probably doesn't have a great understanding of, of course uh, argentinian diplomacy <laughs> and what any of this actually meant and uh, just to have this strong simple thing to be angry at you know to blame and also i mean just the sense of father being uh dying in a war and that somehow that you know this is tied to you know nationalism and patriotism and you know even though there was no <laughs> they were not defending england right um this was not a war that had anything to do with England, really. Well, th- that's why I, it was a little surprising to me, and then I, I didn't know if I should have even been surprised, but that Combo seemed to be really a non-interventionist, <laughs> like he felt like the Falklands <laughs> War was was meaningless. That, I mean, if you talk to racist skinheads here, if you talk to Nazis, uh, no, those are, they're all mostly, they don't they don't like the Iraq War. They're isolationists. Yeah, they, you know, take care of America. Right. It, it's funny because, I mean, and this is an, a thing that the movie treated honestly and, and gave me kind of a, a weird new perspective on, but that there's, there's this real sense of nationalism and pride in your culture and ethnicity that a lot of times goes hand in hand with fighting a war against foreigners mm-hmm. and the kind of like, this is a football game and my team's going to win and I'm going to wave the flag of my team mentality that I, I, I guess I just unthinkingly brought to my assumptions about how a skinhead nationalist British punk would have <laughs> seen a war. And, and it was really the opposite. Yeah, we've definitely, you know, having growing up when and where we grew up, there's definitely a strong correlation between the right wing and uh the military you know that's like you know before neoconservatism i don't know if that was necessarily the case uh and and of course the 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 way that both both sides of the political spectrum in in the united states equate the other with you know nazism (laughs) fascism (laughs) it's 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 hard to grok but each is just as convinced that the other is the exact model of that one of them's a little more correct, <laughs> but the but the way you see just as many pictures of like Hitler and you know who else had a you know gun control platform Hitler to <laughs> shit like it just and obviously it's something I'm I'm woefully underqualified to speak about on the broader socio political aspects. Another country in the decade where I was in my single digit years. (laughs) But it was fascinating to get this kind of uh, insight into it. The big red ones. Oh, you're not having them, sweetheart. Look at the size of them. Oh, come on, Mum, you said. No, John, they look like thug boots. They're awful, I don't like them. Come on, Mum, you promised me. Why don't you get some of them that you've got in blue or something? Because I don't like these. I want them ones, Mum. Come on, you promised. They'll rub on your shin. Mind you be about that. You're better in my size. I like Sean's mom. Sean had a good mom. He did have a good mom. <laughs> <laughs> like we mentioned before, uh, his mom and smell talking was just one of the most delightful scenes in the movie. <laughs> yeah, she was good. She, she, really great actress. I thought I wasn't going to buy it the way she kind of just turned custody of him over to the punks. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, and and again, this is it gets into I don't know how much detail I need to get into about my own life. But, 
I mean, when I was 14, and it was the same thing. It's like, you know, this movie starts on the last day of school for Sean. Mm-hmm. And so pretty much the entire thing takes place during, I guess, summer vacation or whatever. <laughs> whatever Europe has instead of summer vacation. <laughs> it's just yeah, summer there. Crumpet months or whatever they call them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just a little xenophobic about these Brits. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was 14 years old when when a bunch of punks from the from the next town over just like essentially adopted me, and I remember <laughs> my dad just waving goodbye to me from the porch, <laughs> and I didn't see him for weeks and weeks. And I was 14 years old, and that that you know that was my first girlfriend, and I was thinking about her when Sean and Smell were kind of like having their weird awkward. Sean and Smell's, like, <laughs> sex moments were so good. And and just a lot of this, just it, it just clicked in that way. It, it, it was one of the things that, like, this kind of works if I just assume that these people are all, like, 17 and they're just being played by older actors. If they're actually in their late 20s and this kid is 12 <laughs> and she, mom's turning him over to them, then that's it doesn't quite work as well but it it did work in the end and and it, that was probably one of the harder things to pull off and also you know the uh skinhead thing is might not at that point have really had that broader cultural significance that oh no i, I mean just to, know, just in terms is... of like sean doesn't come home for a long time i think it's just all <laughs> i'm really talking about and like not not so much that that mom should have known they were trouble do you ever see the the movie suburbia from 1984 uh, yes. It didn't occur to me while I was watching it, but later, like, that movie was made as a contemporary movie mm-hmm. in the time period that this movie w- is meant to portray, except it's obviously in the United States. Yeah. It's really I re- clunky. I mean, it's a really... Well, super, like, weirdly overdramatic in parts. and. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. It was, I think, by a first-time dire- writer-director uh, woman, and she didn't cast actors. She cast punks mm-hmm. so so the acting is really hammy and terrible and the drama is really melodramatic <laughs> i definitely like remember like we need a plot beat here so like someone's gonna die yeah and it's a little silly but it's also a really beloved movie among at least people i know who grew up with a in a real punk mm-hmm. social group that that they felt like that kind of subculture wasn't represented in the media at all and so <laughs> it was represented but you know right. <laughs> they all did flips before they pulled out their right they showed up on rollerblades with mohawks mm-hmm. and like, nah we're gonna take you all later <laughs> but uh, the other the other suburbia obviously richard linklater's less of a uh, kind of cultural similarity but much more of a movie making similarity and I was trying to think of, like, who makes these really naturalistic movies in the United States? Like, a lot of people compare Shane Meadows to Mike Lee, mm-hmm. the you know, another UK director who I have kind of mixed feelings about. But Richard Linklater is, the, is I think, the best comparison in the United States that I can come up with. Especially, like, the suburbia, the 1996 suburbia that he he directed. And also, like, Slacker or Tape. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of Mammoth kind of has that. Hmm. Not not quite the same, you know, because his, I mean, his movies are very, you know, his writing is very, very tight and controlled. Hmm. But, uh, you know, a lot of his, you know, stuff that's written for the stage and is, you know, I think when it's adapted to film, it really gets, eh, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> when it's done well, uh, or what I should say, when it's done badly, it's really difficult to overcome because <laughs> it, it ju- it's really like watching a school play or something and and it, and it severs any emotional connection you have to it but when it's done well it, it works so well and it, and it achieves one of the highest uh aspirations i think of film which is 
you know, making that kind of emotional connection to you, making you think of aspects of your own life and comparing and contrasting to the to the movie, falling in love with the characters as if they're real people that you know. Uh, and like you said, filling out their kind of backstories in your mind and coming to understand where they're coming from, even when it's not made explicit in the movie. It worked really, really well on those levels, I thought. Um, yeah. Any last thoughts you have about it? The piano song was sad. And I like it when the piano song was sad. Because then I felt sad. So the next movie I want to do uh, with you is uh, Wizards, which, what year was that, 1979? I could not put, like, Ralph Bakshi movies in uh, any kind of timeline. They all came out between the mid-70s and the mid-80s, and this was one of them. (laughs) And I think a lot of people, even if they've only seen it once and many years ago, it's kind of stamped a memory on it. I've, I, I've, I've had people bring it up to me and trying to remember the name or, or trying to describe it to me and ask if I'd seen it because it was a real pioneering, visually pioneering movie in terms of mixing different animation styles and doing some kind of proto rotoscoping type animation and tracing live video. And also I think probably the most, the first adult cartoon I'd ever seen, the first cartoon with nipples. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely very unique movie yeah i and i probably saw it when i was you know eight or ten and it yeah it's it stuck with me yeah just a lot of the images those uh you know crazy gas mask soldiers um uh nipples um and and heavy heavy nazi imagery just used like straight out right i mean yeah actually using stock footage right of yeah world war ii stock footage as it and i believe actually that was a plot element was like that they'd actually is a kind of meta thing i haven't seen this movie forever but i kind of have a memory of they actually like discovered this you know the stock footage or you know the the great you know the great weapon of whatever the evil guy was uh was you know, this Nazi propaganda and the actual media was uh, part of the plot of the movie. Yeah, that's a good memory. It's that 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 is his secret weapon is these ancient propaganda videos that he kind of uncovers, empowers him to or, or it gives him this kind of rise to power and command over his army to, to face off against his brother, who's the kind of dopey stoner light wizard. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I definitely, a lot of the visual style I remember is that it really looked like um, collage. It was kind of the first time I'd seen, you know, animated, yeah, just those real different, you know, different styles. And just like one scene would be an entirely different style than the next. Well, a thing to look for when you're watching it is is um, get, you know, watch the highest quality version you can get and and watch it on a, uh, on a, on a, good you know screen because 
uh, the last time I watched it, it was at the 1080p. And when you're watching it at a really high resolution, there are some of the settings and the, the set pieces and, and transitional kind of, uh, there's, there's moments where it's just kind of more of a slideshow while a narrator talks, but some of the mm -hmm. unbelievable detail that goes into some of these, uh, these, these pieces of artwork that just now for the first time, you're, you're going to be able to see the incredible line work that would have just been muddy as fuck on VHS. Yeah. I think that's a real good thing uh -huh. to keep an eye out for on this one. Cause it's, it's a whole nother experience watching it, uh, in, in a good high definition copy. Yeah. I'd be really interested to, I mean, see who some of the artists were. I mean, I really, I, mean, I don't know if there's anyone I would really recognize. I really don't have any any real idea about that scene but um yeah and i think you'll see awesome. in each scene the artist is really putting their stamp on it in a, in a really unique way and i just imagined that there was with wizards there was a lot of you know cocaine <laughs> involved <laughs> and a lot of bad decisions and bad management and just i don't know i can't I'm, i mean i have no idea who ralph bash back ralph Bash. I can't say his name now. Ralph Bakshi uh, actually is, but I'm just—I just have to imagine him as—I uh, don't know—cocaine asshole. It's possible. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's even—if I have any basis for that, but that's my guess. Well, it's an incredible movie and incredibly memorable. And um, uh, if if you haven't—if it's been a long time since you've seen it, or or if you haven't seen it, I really strongly recommend this one. Sweet. Well, thanks for thanks for talking to me, Aaron, and thanks for the thanks for the movie. Um, thank you for something. Hello. <laughs> okay, I guess we'll just end on that. <laughs> Stop. Hey guys, Jesse here again. I'm just cutting in here real quick at the end for a second to let you know. Uh, Aaron and I have a little extra window of opportunity, and we want to record a little mini episode for you. This will just be a little bonus. It'll be coming out on, it looks like, the first of the month, and we'll be discussing the 1994 comedy Cabin Boy with Chris Elliott. Otherwise, there's no changes to the schedule. We do still have a full-length Wizards episode coming up Wednesday, a week from today. We're just squeezing this little guy in between, a little extra for you. So remember, Cabin Boy, watch it if you get a chance for a special mini episode coming out on Monday. And thanks, we'll talk to you soon.